just imagine. The mightiest heroes of our time. Superman. Batman. Flash. Green Lantern. Wonder Woman. Hot Girl. John Jones, Manhunter from Mars. Have banded together as the Justice League to stamp out the forces of evil wherever and whenever they appear. The Fire and Water Podcast Network proudly presents... JLU Cast. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of JLU Cast. We are a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network covering the animated adventures of the Justice League and their eventual evolution into the Justice League Unlimited. I'm one of your hosts, Cindy Franklin. And I'm Chris Franklin and boy we have been away for a long time, haven't we? Just a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. Uh, we apologize for the delay but as we stated last time, we produced a Supermates to tie into JL May podcast and crossover event. I did a lot of guest spots yes. and appeared in other episodes on this network. And, of course, we were both on the, the giant sampler, uh, yes. summer sampler That uh, just special. dropped recently. Yeah, that they're probably still listening to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, in addition, well, life just kind of happened. June came and went, and we never found time to do. Well, you have to think, you know, May and June, I am the youth librarian at my local public library and summer reading is just oh my gosh busy yeah for which me. is why we don't take a summer vacation uh so let me take a he's fall not, he's not bitter no i'm not bitter uh so yeah uh but we're back and this time we had a tough call to make on just which episodes we were going to cover because production wise the next episodes up were parts one and two of injustice for all but those episodes ran into some production problems way back in 2001 and were pushed back for quite some time. Instead, Paradise Lost aired after The Enemy Below, which we just covered with Rob Kelly. And Well, we covered the previous time with Rob uh -huh. Kelly. <laughs> uh, in fact, four more two-part stories aired before Injustice for All finally aired on September 13, 2002 after several months of no new episodes airing on Cartoon Network. Consider this a soft Season 2 premiere, even though we're still in Season 1. Uh, Cartoon Network did lots of weird things with Justice League. It uh -huh. was kind of strange the way they did their scheduling. Season 2 takes forever to start, even though they were all in the can. Right. So, uh, so which one do we cover? Well, after a break like we had, we thought, why not restart with a bang? A villain-filled episode featuring the return of two of our favorite actors in all the DCAU Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, and of course, Mark Hamill as the Joker. Also, the Injustice Gang appear in the episode Fury, which has to take place after these episodes, so continuity-wise, it makes sense to go with Injustice for All. Oh, and this is the order on the DVD sets, so if you're following along with us, it's easier on you, too. Watchtower Files since this episode marks the debut of an Injustice Gang, we thought we'd look at the wide and varied history of the Opposite Number Team in its many forms and names throughout the history of DC Comics. We're concentrating on teams of mostly pre-existing villains who had fought the heroes at least once before, and we're talking about teams of villains pulled from multiple heroes' rogues galleries, so no team-ups of Superman villains, Batman, etc. Right. Although the forerunner to the Justice League, the Justice Society of America, was comics' first team of superheroes, their foes weren't quite as organized, at least not at first. That distinction belongs to DC's second stringer team, the Seven Soldiers of Victory, a.k.a. the Law's Legionnaires. Several of their arch enemies assembled an unnamed team under the direction of a criminal known as The Hand in leading comics number one, Winter 1941. 
the team of the Crimson Avenger, the Shining Knight, the Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy, Green Arrow and Speedy, and the Vigilante, first gathered to battle their rogues Red Dragon, the Needle, Professor Merlin, and the Dummy. While only the Dummy makes it onto Justice League Unlimited, all the heroes do in some form, and they even get their own Spotlight episode. The precursor to the Injustice Gang first appeared as the Injustice Society of the World in All-Star Comics number 37, October-November 1947, created by editor Sheldon Mayer and writer Robert Kaniger. The Justice Society of America faced off against a team of old foes organized by their enemy, the Wizard, and included fe fellow JSA team foes, Brainwave, and... Per Degaton. Okay. <laughs> Green Lantern rivals Vandal Savage and the Gambler, and Flash foe, the Thinker. Per Degaton was on the JSA episode of the Brave and the Bolt. Red-haired guy, black-looking kind of SS outfit. Remember him? No. Okay, all right. <laughs> the wizard organized... Well, there you go. The wizard organized an all-new Injustice Society in All-Star number 41, June-July 1948, including the Sportsmaster, Icicle, and Harlequin from Green Lantern's Rogues Gallery, Flash Foe the Fiddler, and the Huntress, a Wildcat villainess, even though Wildcat wasn't on the team by this point, which is just weird. When the JSA finally meet the Justice League of America in JLA 2122, August through September 63, they fought a group known as the Crime Champions, featuring Injustice Society alumni Wizard, Icicle, and Fiddler, as well as Earth-1 JLA foes Kronos, Felix Faust, and Dr. Alchemy. An organized team of JLA foes didn't reappear until the first Injustice gang was formed by new villain Libra in JLA number 111, May-June 1974. The team consisted of Kronos, him again, Scarecrow, Poison Ivy, the Shadow Thief, the Mirror Master, and the Tattooed Man. Supervillain Team Mania had hit DC hard, with a ton of teams emerging or re-emerging during the mid to late 70s. A one-time organization using the imaginative title of the Anti-Justice League appeared in Action Comics number 443, January 1975, led by JLA foe the Queen Bee and featuring Kronos, he's a joiner, Brainiac, Clayface 2, Harpy, Merlin the Archer, Gorilla Grodd, Ocean Master, and Sinestro, the last two of which were discussed in our previous two episodes. Mm -hmm. The Secret Society of Supervillains debuted in its own title in June 1976, organized by Darkseid. The initial team consisted of Captain Boomerang, Captain Cold, Mirror Master, Shadow Thief, Sinestro, Gorilla Grodd, Star Sapphire, and Copperhead. More on those two later. The Secret Society's roster would constantly change with the Wizard and the Ultra Humanite. Yay! More on him later. Organizing their own iterations later. <laughs> Around this time in the relaunched All-Star Comics, a revived Injustice Society, or was that Injustice Gang, resurfaced to take on the JSA and their new members in the Super Squad. Perhaps the most famous version of the villain team made its debut in the fall of 1978 when the Legion of Doom took center stage as an antagonist of the entire season of the Challenge of the Super Friends on ABC TV. The meeting will come to order. The Legion of Doom is now in session. It is the purpose of the Legion to align our infamous forces against the powers of good and defeat them, leaving us the rulers of the world. To do this, we have gathered together the 13 most ruthless villains on Earth, the frigid... Captain Cold. The sinister mind of Sinestro. The awesome Bizarro and Solomon Grundy. 
cunning cheetah and the super-intelligent computer android Brainiac. Black Manta and Grodd the Gorilla. The Toy Man and the humorous but sinister Riddler. The feminine yet ferocious Giganta and the hideous Scarecrow. <laughs> Not to mention the evil genius and brilliant leadership of myself, Lex Luthor. A far different Legion of Doom was proposed for the series when Hanna-Barbera mistakenly thought they had the animation rights to Captain Marvel and his characters. Dr. Savannah would have led the team that would have included several of the Big Red Cheese's rogues, as well as more prominent Batman foes such as Joker and Catwoman. But rival studio Filmation had animation rights to most of the Bat characters and all the Shazam family at the time. In 1979, a group of villains with some Legion of Doom crossover appeared in the infamous live-action pseudo-adaption of the Super Friends, also produced by Hanna-Barbera. The two Legends of the Superhero specials featured a villainous team led by Dr. Savannah and included Solomon Grande, the Riddler, Sinestro, Giganta, Weather Wizard, Mordru, and Aunt Minerva? Yeah, Aunt Minerva, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ruth Buzzy is Aunt Minerva. Uh, <laughs> okay. You can tell I've sat through that once. <laughs> and wanted to gouge my eyes out later, but anyway. <laughs> the things I do for love. <laughs> During the 80s, real... <laughs> Sorry. During the 80s, reorganizations of the Secret Society and Justice Society, now known as Injustice Unlimited, and the Crime Champions occurred. The first team, known as the Injustice League, was formed by Major Disaster in Justice League International No. 23, January 89. The team consisted of Mort's, Clue Master, Multi-Man, Clock King, and Big Sur. The team was later sanctioned by Maxwell Lord, see how that worked out, <laughs> as Justice League Antarctica. Be sure to stay tuned to Shag's JLI Bwahaha cast for more on this lovable group of losers. The Injustice Gang returned with a vengeance and a much better roster in JLA No. 9, September 1997, led by Lex Luthor and featuring the top foes in each of the League members' rogues galleries, the Joker, Cersei, Dr. Light, Mirror Master, and Ocean Master. Since then, the Injustice team concept has rarely had a mouth off, with appearances too numerous to mention. Needless to say, we'll get to several more supervillain teams in our coverage of this series, so much more to come. Oh, and I'm sure we left out a team or two, but we think we hit the major ones. Let us know in the comments section at fireandwaterpodcast.com. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll return to dive into Injustice for All. Hey there. Welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oop, time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book!
In late 1984, Marvel's direct sales manager sat in a crowded meeting of comic retailers. Let's be honest, Secret Wars was crap, right? But did it sell? The room exploded with applause. Well, get ready for Secret Wars Series 2! Beginning in 2018, Pulp to Pixel's Marvel superhero Secret Wars and Beyond will do the unthinkable Secret Wars 2. We'll take a detailed look at the event, the tie-ins, the new characters, and we will attempt to answer one of the largest questions in the history of the Marvel Universe. What the heck was Jim Shooter thinking? No, no, seriously, what was Jim Shooter thinking? Well, you can find out at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where you can subscribe to all of our amazing shows, or just to Secret Wars and Beyond itself, as it is now in its own omnipotent feed. Secret Wars 2 and Beyond, a Pulp to Pixel Podcast production. You'll believe an omnipotent being can use the restroom. Injustice for All was written by Stan Berkowitz, directed by Butch Lukic, music by Lolita Ritmanis, and premiered September 13, 2002. And the cast we had, Kevin Conroy as Batman, of course, Maria Canals as Hot Girl, Susan Eisenberg as Wonder Woman, Phil Lamar as Green Lantern, Carl Lumley as John Jones, George Newbern as Superman, Michael Rosenbaum as The Flash, Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, Mark Hamill as The Joker and Solomon Grundy, Ian Buchanan as Ultra Humanite, Woo-hoo! Olivia Diabo as Star Sapphire, Stephen McHattie as The Shade, Cheryl Lee Ralph as Cheetah, Efrain Figueroa as Copperhead, Jason Marsden as Rob Kelly's favorite character, Snapper Carr, Grant Hisloff as Doctor, Ashley Edner as Trina. Part 1. At his corporate headquarters in Metropolis, Lex Luthor holds Superman at bay with a chunk of glowing kryptonite. Feeling that he has the man of steel on the ropes, Luthor gloats about his latest criminal scheme, supplying weapons to terrorists. Superman suddenly rises, much to Lex's shock. It turns out that this man of steel is a manhunter from Mars, as John Jones resumes his usual superheroic form. It can't be. The kryptonite won't protect you any longer. No! You're usually more careful, Lex. You slipped up. And you're going down hard. Mission accomplished. So much for your images, the benevolent businessman. This is the end of an era. Batman and Green Lantern arrive to inform Lex that his role as criminal mastermind has finally been exposed. Lex manages to escape in a mini-jet, which is intercepted by the real Steel Deal. Lex fires missiles at Superman, and it looks like he might just get away when he suffers some kind of seizure and the ship begins to plummet. Superman catches the ship and, opening the cockpit, finds Lex passed out in pain. Waking up in a prison hospital ward, Lex is informed by his doctor and Superman that he has contracted a rare and terminal blood disorder from constant kryptonite exposure. Mr. Luthor, you had a seizure. Has this happened to you before? My tests indicate you have a rare form of blood poisoning. Impossible. Remember that chunk of kryptonite you carried around for years? What about it? Kryptonite only affects you. Actually, we're finding that it can affect humans too, but only if they're exposed over a long period. This is your fault. All of it. What's the treatment? Radiation? Chemo? Unfortunately, there is no cure. Then find one. Price is no object. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. It's terminal. Happy Superman. Lex, if there's anything I can do... You've done more than enough. 
Superman is genuinely sympathetic to Luthor's plight, but of course Lex blames his hated foe for destroying him. Adding insult to injury, Lex's jail cell at Stryker Island Prison is next to the Ultra-Humanite, an urbane criminal genius whose brain resides in the body of a mutated albino ape. Humanite likes to watch public broadcasting very loudly, much to Luther's chagrin. Hacking into his own TV and then interrupting the opera broadcast Humanite was watching, Lex eventually proposes a partnership. With their intellects combined, the two easily escape. Batman hears the police call on the Batmobile's radio and responds. As Luther and Humanite flee, they set a nearby apartment house on fire as a distraction. Batman enters the building to rescue a trapped little girl and is nearly killed before Hawk Girl swoops in to the rescue. She's a little put out when Batman doesn't thank her, to which the Dark Knight responds, I'm not used to being saved. <laughs> I love your Kevin Conroy, by the way. <laughs> Later at the abandoned Metropolis Picture Store building, Lex holds a recruitment drive that brings the Werewoman Cheetah, Snake-like Copperhead, Zombie Powerhouse Solomon Grundy, Shadow Manipulating Shade, and the Energy Gem-wielding Star Sapphire together. Lex's sales pitch is simple. He'll pay them all handsomely for their unique talents if they work together with him and Humanite to destroy Superman and the Justice League. Cheetah, Sapphire, Grundy, glad you could make it. And of course, you all know the ultra-humanite. Charmed, I'm sure. Cut the courtesies, Luthor. What do you want? Each of you is the best in the world at what you do. And I have need of your unique services. My talents don't come cheaply. You'll all be paid most handsomely if you can do one simple job. What kind of job? Destroy Superman and the Justice League. On the Watchtower, Flash's machismo is once again decimated by Hot Girl, while Batman intercepts a news broadcast from Snapper Carr concerning the ultra-humanite taking hostages at the Metropolis Federal Building. The League arrives on the scene, and GL and Superman take the battle with humanite inside. Batman tends to the hostage he had at gunpoint, only to find it is a cheetah in disguise. All the Leaguers, both Justice and Injustice, join the fray, and a full-on super-powered brawl ensues. Batman notices Lex observing from above. The two battle, but Lex gets the advantage, and has the Dark Knight at gunpoint. A stray blast from Star Sapphire destroys the walkway they are standing on, but Humanite manages to save Lex and his paycheck. Mm -hmm. Recovering from the blast, Batman is bitten by Copperhead, but Lex must concede that the League is better organized and orders a retreat, with the Shade's nightstick providing distraction for their escape. The heroes find Copperhead left behind, and Batman suffering from his poisonous bite. Back at the Watchtower, Batman recovers thanks to a Venom antidote, but Superman orders him to stay in bed and recuperate while he goes to Stryker's Island to interrogate Copperhead. Of course, the Dark Knight doesn't take orders, so he immediately gets out of bed and gets to work. John tries to play counselor and reassure Batman that despite his feeling vulnerable over his lack of powers, he's still a valued member of the team. You really should be resting. I know this must be hard for you, feeling vulnerable. You're the only one of us without special powers. But you don't need to prove yourself. You're a valued member of this team, and we're only trying to... I'm taking the shuttle. Unless you want to try and stop me. No. At their hideout, Lex admonishes his Injustice gang for their failure. When his team tells Lex they'll try harder for more money, he's enraged. Grundy doesn't take kindly to Luthor's tone and threatens to pop his head off. Lex tells him he'll be saving him the indignity of a slow death. The best at what you do. What was I thinking? 
We did everything we could. Did you? Did you fight like your lives depended on it? Did you fight to the last man? You get what you pay for, Luthor. Are you saying you want more money? You want to be rewarded for failure? I ought to take the whole lot of you and... And what? Ah, go ahead, do it. You'll be saving me for months of bedpans and feeding tubes. And you'll also guarantee that none of you will ever see a penny from me. You're crazy. And what's wrong with that? It's done wonders for me. Get out of here. Oh, Lexi, I'm hurt. How could you have this little party without inviting me? All of this is interrupted by the ultimate party crasher, the Joker. He's upset that his old pal Lex didn't send him an invitation. Luthor orders Grundy to throw Joker out, but the clown prince gasses the undead giant. Joker points out something that super genius Lex overlooked. A bat tracer on his back. Batman follows the tracer to the hideout and observes Lex and his team playing cards from above. But Batman didn't count on the wild card, and the Joker is always wild. The Harlequin of Hate sneaks up on his favorite foe and KOs him with a satchel full of rocks, sending the Dark Knight crashing to the card table and den of villains below. <laughs> to be continued. Okay, uh, so that's part one. Um, so what do you think of this? Batman, he's poor little thing. He got his pride wounded, so now he's going to go act and be a big big man. It's <laughs> rear end handed to him because he did. <laughs> Yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. Um, him poor, he had to be saved by a girl. It, Heaven forbid. It, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's true. And we'll get there's there's a lot that's we'll get to that. We'll get to that. That's that's a story element that. Uh, and once we get to part two, they go in an interesting direction in that. That's kind of. Hmm. Uh, but now, right off the bat, though, this episode carries over Lex's story from Superman the Animated Series, which, of course, they use the businessman Lex right. Luthor. They use the post-crisis version of Lex that was untouchable. Superman can never pin anything on him. And even run up against Batman, obviously, in the in the world's finest um, three-part episode. Um, so, I, I, you know, we start out with Lex as the, the untouchable businessman, but he goes down quick, mm -hmm. and they get him. And I thought that was... You know, that was really a nice, nice way to go. And it was surprising, especially for longtime fans. It's like, wow, they just took yeah. Lex's, Lex's covers blown finally. And, you know, ultimately, Lex will become the most important villain on this series mm -hmm. through Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. I mean, he's going to become a very important character. And this is our first, uh, the first time seeing him on. You could say he's the most important character in the series. Yeah, you could, actually. I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, you could. Considering the arc. Yeah, you really could, yeah. Uh, I thought it was cool when you first, uh, you see the LexCorp tower, and you can only see the green glow coming, you know, you see the green glow coming out of the windows. Right. And that's all you can see through the windows. That was a nice bit. Uh, Lex even says he carried the kryptonite around for years. So, I mean, he's, you know, admitting that... He, it's a glowing green rock. <laughs> Did he think it was a light bright? <laughs> From space. Well, in the old comics, uh, Kryptonite, of course, 
they wouldn't know the old continuity. But the pre-crisis continuity, kryptonite never, green kryptonite didn't affect humans. It just didn't. You know, the, radi the radiation from it was only, like, specific to Kryptonian DNA or whatever. So, but, I mean, that's, you know, so that was a new wrinkle, which we'll, we'll get, you know, that, obviously, this is barring from the comics, which we'll get into. Yeah, so Lex, I mean, Jean even denotes on screen that it's the end of an era, and it really is. I mean, yeah. they have put an end to businessman. Yeah, Lex. him having a public persona that he can go out in society. Right, yeah. Uh, Lex escapes in his little mini jet, and he fires two missiles from it at Superman. Superman dodges one, and the other one hits him. Now, where did that other one go? <laughs> and it's just flying and, around the city. And why isn't Superman concerned about a stray missile flying through his city? Exactly, exactly yeah. <laughs> now, this missile hurts Superman, and then when he grabs Lex's mini jet, he grunts in pain. So, was there kryptonite in this missile? I mean... I don't know if we can count this on our not so Superman count. So I know, and we'll, you know, it's a mini jet, close proximity. How long does it take to rub off? Blah blah blah. You know? Yeah, and he, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Lex passes out. We go to the opening prison, title sequence, yeah. and then we open up in prison, and he's in a hospital bed, and he launches into, "I'll get the best lawyers, the best witnesses." Before Superman shuts him down, it's like none of that matters anymore. That's you know, it's like their games are over. See, that's the thing. I mean, that, that's what I was getting ready to say. The game. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure Lex has killed people. And, you know, it's just like, oh, we've been playing and you've been the bad guy and I've been the good guy. But, you know, this is, we, we need to be serious now. I'm like, he's Lex freaking Luthor. <laughs> Superman's not quite there with him yet. That Lex flipping Luthor. He's not, he's not quite, he's not quite wound up by him as much. In this series, he gets more wound up by Darkseid at this point, which we're not going to get to that for a while. But I know, but I mean, I just, you know, it's just like. Is he being? You think he's being a little too sympathetic to yes! Lex? Yes. Well, Superman doesn't want to see anybody die. I mean, that's Superman. You yeah, know. Yeah, but I'm kind of more blood. You're more vindictive, but you're not Superman. So, <laughs> uh, he's genuinely sorry to see Lex on the terminal list. You know, like, and, and I'm, I'm not sure he's going to feel the same by the end of this series. And you know, you know, per your favorite line, which we just said in all the JLU, JL, JLU, JLU. Per your, per your favorite line in all of JLU, you know. Yeah. Come on, he's... He's Lex flipping Luthor! Right, yeah. Lex dying from kryptonite poisoning is directly adapted from the late 80s, early 90s Superman comics where Lex's kryptonite ring he wore to keep Superman at bay first cost him his hand, then he had a robot hand, and then his life. Of course, that Lex had his brain placed in a clone body, but still the inspiration is obvious. Who later slept with Supergirl, but hey. Yeah. You know. Yeah, like long-haired Amish, Australian Amish Lex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, who slept with Matrix Supergirl that was like the doughy, you know, protoplasm. Yeah, all yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's all, all, there's so there's so much in that storyline that, that story. And, I mean, I know it evolved, but it's like you can't really even explain all that. It's like. That two to three years of the Superman series is kind of like a wash. Yeah. So, well, know. no, I mean that that, those, that was that was a good era for the Superman. But I'm but saying, you know, those particular those particular elements, elements of it are kind of you can't stand back. You can't explain that away in like just a sentence. You yeah, know? No. It's like no, you just can't. Do we really have to tell you how awesome Clancy Brown is? Go watch Highlander, and that's enough. Uh, because the Kurgan is one of the best screen villains. Period. 
and he's got a massively impressive body of work besides that and tons of geek cred outside of voicing Lex here. He was recently seen on both The Flash as General Wade Eiling, another character we'll see later on JLU, and as another military commander on Netflix, Daredevil, where he was tied into the Punisher's backstory. But, of course, he's got a huge IMDb. It's better to burn out than to fade away. That's right. <laughs> Obviously, I am not the voice talent on this. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, we have your favorite, the ultra-humanite. Yay! I love him. <laughs> this iteration of the ultra-humanite, I, I like him. <laughs> You can be down with the ultra human eye. I can. <laughs> Which we as were. again, as I've said. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. I know. We've brought this. It, it bears repeating that once on the, for people who didn't listen to Supermates, we covered uh, we covered the Christmas episode of Justice yes. League. Yes. On when we were doing Supermates, Comfort and Joy, and uh, Ultra Human Eye is featured in that episode. With the Flash. With the Flash heavily. And you were like, I could be down with this version of the Ultra Human. You're like, said, oh, he's so bad, blah, 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 blah. I said, you could be down with somebody who, uh, a guy who uh, put his brain inside a mutated albino ape, and then you said. I married you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he he's a smart, basically shaved ape. <laughs> Thanks. I love you so much. <laughs> wow. Wow. I said you were smart. Thanks. Uh, moving on, Ultra Humanite was Superman's first recurring mad scientist villain and debuted in Action Comics number 13, June 1939. He was originally bald and in this first story had a henchman who looked a lot like the original Luthor with his shock of red hair who debuted the following year. Ultra liked to brain swap a lot, even gender bending by placing his brain in Hollywood actress Dolores Winters in Action Comics number 40. George Perez designed his famous albino ape look in my first encounter with the character, Justice League of America number 196, November 1981. Now, Ian Buchanan, who played the Ultra Humanite, is best known for his long runs on three popular soap operas, Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, and The Bold and the Beautiful. He voiced the character of Connor in the new Batman Adventures episode, Old Wounds, who was working for Mark Hamill's Joker, and was Sherlock Holmes on Batman the Brave and the Bold's The Trials of the Demon. So he's got quite a bit of, you know, DC animated credit. Yeah. yeah. And it, he was one of those guys, I never really looked him up before, who voiced the Ultra Humanite. But as soon as I looked him up on IMDb, I'm like, oh, that, oh, yeah, the guy. that yeah. guy. Yeah, I recognized him from, like, you watching Days of Our Lives and Rhonda watching General Hospital, my sister, and things like that. And mm -hmm. So I, I recognized him, yeah. Uh, Humanite's love for art and culture informs his character in all his Justice League appearances. See? Yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a compliment, sweetie. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> now, you know, of course, Lex and Humanite escape, and their, their escape's actually pretty cool. Uh, and they, they, you know, they they throw a bomb at a, a building, apartment building, to distract the police and any incoming superheroes. Uh, and in just about every TV show or movie with a burning building, there is always some parent that makes it out, but their kid is stuck inside. I'm sorry, but if my kids can't get out, I ain't leaving until they can. Right. I mean, there ain't none of this, oh, we got separated bullshit. I know I'm going to throw you over my shoulder and carry you out. I mean, exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> you know, I just, I was like, the parents need to be in there trapped with them. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, 
but you know, like you said, Hot Girl Saves Batman, which you oh, know, yeah, well, a, you will why? I'm not used to being saved, you know. That's and especially, a, and you can just hear it in in his voice, especially by a girl. No, I, I don't think that of Batman. I don't think he's sexist that way. I just don't think he like he, Superman saved him in men the same way. He he'd still have his pride hurt. So he's just you know, I think so. Okay, so we cut over to Cheetah, who's slinking up the stairs to the Metropolis Picture Store building, and so now we're going to meet our Injustice gang. Uh, Cheetah is arguably Wonder Woman's most famous foe, mm-hmm. debuting in Wonder Woman number six, September nineteen forty-three. She will be the villain of Wonder Woman nineteen eighty-four, the sequel yes. to Wonder Woman. Currently filming with the surprising casting of Kristen Wiig in the who role. Who is that? Kristen Wiig. Yeah, she's. She's been in a lot of comedy. She was on SNL. She was in the new Ghostbusters movie. Okay. Yeah. So, oh. yeah. I don't think we've seen a lot of the things she's in. Okay. So, because we're okay. parents and don't watch those type of movies that much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Basically, if it's not do- Disney or a superhero movie. Well, there's so many superhero know. movies now that I find I don't have time to watch, like, regular movies much anymore. Right. Well, that's what I I'm mean, saying. I, I, you know, if keep... it's not Disney or a superhero movie, we don't have time to go Yeah, to keep, to keep up with, yeah, the other movies, yeah. So, here Cheetah is voiced by Cheryl Lee Ralph, who had long runs in live action on It's a Living and Moesha, and actually appeared on an episode of the live action Wonder Woman series. She voiced Amanda Waller on Young Justice as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Copperhead debuted in The Brave and the Bold number 78 in a story where Wonder Woman and Batgirl were too busy fighting over Batman to deal with him. Have you ever read that story? No. It is insane. I mean, all of a sudden, Batgirl and Wonder Woman, it's a Bob Haney story. Oh, Batgirl and Wonder Batgirl and Wonder Woman are like obsessed with fighting over Batman and like his affections. Yeah, it's really uh. strange. Yeah. Uh, he is basically a utility DC villain fighting various heroes, but not belonging to any particular rogues gallery, although he showed up quite a bit in the, the late 80s Hawk and Dove series. He's voiced by Efrain Figueroa, who has a long list of character acting creds on IMDb, including some voice work on Batman Beyond. My pal Solomon Grundy crawled out of Slaughter Swamp way back in All-American Comics number 61, October 1944, battling Green Lantern Alan Scott. He's gone on to become a foe of both the JSA and JLA in general, and Superman and Batman in particular, and of course a supporting character in our beloved Starman series by James Robinson and Tony mm-hmm. Harris. He's voiced by some guy named Mark Hamill who never amounted much anything, I don't think. You know, I never heard of him again, did you? No, I don't think Mark Hamill's done anything even recently. No, know? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> There's some fans that might have wished he hadn't done anything recently. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> Not me, though, but some people. Uh, the Shade... Uh, nothing against Mark Hamill, just what he was in. Uh, the Shade first perplexed Flash J. Garrick in Flash Comics number 33, September 1942. He, won, he went on to be a foe of the JSA, JLA, and Barry Allen's Flash as well, before semi-reforming and becoming a major character uh, once again in our beloved Starman series by Robinson and Harris. We need to figure out if we're ever going to go back to that. We're going to. We just got to get around to it. Yeah. The character design is closer to his Golden Age, Silver Age look with the addition of high heels. Not that I'm judging. But in addition to playing the shade, Stephen McHattie has DC Comics cred as Hollis Mason in Zack Snyder's Watchmen film. He also has quite a long and impressive IMDb listing. Star Sapphire was a Flash villain in the Golden Age, premiering in All Flash number 32, January 1948. The most famous version was an evil personality of Green Lantern Hal Jordan's girlfriend and boss, Carol Ferris, who debuted in Green Lantern number 16, October 1962. 
She's voiced by Olivia de Abou, who first whose first acting gig was Conan the Destroyer when she was 15. So there's you some credit. Yeah, she was the princess in that. Mm-hmm. She went on to play Kevin Arnold's older hippie sister Karen on The Wonder Years and has voiced many DC animated projects where she continues to play Star Sapphire in some of them. We'll also hear her again as Morgan Le Fay later in this series. One thing that I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this, we're not sure how connected these villains are to their rival heroes from the comics. Mm -hmm. um, they seem to be known commodities to the League and certainly to Lex. I mean, he put the call out and they Why? answered. So we have to assume that at least a few of these heroes and villains have clashed, you know. Right. Because we haven't, I mean, it obviously, like... The Justice League, when they all formed, they all knew even Hot Girl. They're like, Hot Girl, what's she doing here? You know, right? So they've all had separate careers before they formed the Justice League. Even though we only saw, uh, really only saw the Flash on the one Superman episode, right? So you know, are these like is Shade a Flash villain? Is um, you know, is has Star Sapphire and Green Lantern fought before? They don't really get into that here. No. They just kind of let you, as the comics fan kind of fill in the blanks in your head, you know. So I, we assume that they've, at least some of them have crossed mm -hmm. paths before. There's a, there's a lot of cool little sight gags in this one, the the best one being the Wonder Twin statue uh, in their headquarters at the yeah, Metropolis Pictures. Cool. Yeah, store building, yeah. That's that's a nice little touch. And we will actually see Wonder Twins-like characters later on on Justice League Unlimited. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for that. Uh I will say, as much as I love Mark Hamill, and all kidding aside, we all know who Mark Hamill is. Well, yeah. Uh, but I was slightly disappointed Grundy didn't have a Southern or Cajun accent, because, you know, to my mind, Grundy still sounds like the Super Friends, Solomon Grundy. Yes, that's, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When Lex appears before the gang, he's wearing a modern update of his Bronze Age Super Friends classic purple and green jumpsuit. Uh, these episodes managed to cover all the major looks Lex sported over the years because we got business suit Lex from the post-crisis era, prison grays Lex from the Silver Age, which Lex was break out of prison and just keep his prison grays on back then. I never understood that. And we'll get one more famous look in part two. So, uh, what do you think about the Flash Hot Girl exchange? <laughs> she shut him down. Just like, nope. And I had those flames out before the firemen even stepped off their trucks. That's fast. <sighs> Fastest man alive. Which might explain why you can't get a date. Yeah. Hey, what's that supposed to mean? There's some serious adult subtext here. And, you know, she's like, he's like, fastest man alive. He's like, well, maybe that's why you can't get a date. And, yeah. And Andrew caught it for the first time on the rewatch. I think it blew his mind. He's like, wait, what? <laughs> he's like, what? There's a sex joke in, in my Justice League cartoon I watched when I was a kid. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I mean, kids wouldn't pick that up, but adults are like, hey. <laughs> yes. uh, now, speaking of the Super Friends, uh, there's another unintentional homage because... Uh, you think it's unintentional? I think so, yeah. I think mm. I don't think they meant to. Hot Girl has three wings as Batman walks away from the monitor because he's sitting down. She's got two wings. He gets up and walks past her, and as he as he walks away, suddenly she's got... Uh, two wings coming from out behind her right shoulder. So <laughs> that's almost like Batman's, you know, logo inverting or, yeah. you know, when like Green Lantern's been captured, but then suddenly he's there at the Hall of Justice with the Super Friends talking about him being captured. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now we talk about the sexual innuendo that was going on between Flash and Hot Girl, but 
there's also another part where they make jokes that are for the adults watching with the kids when Green Lantern says, drop the weapon, Magilla. Right. Because kids, uh, you know, kids aren't going to get that joke because Magilla was from our childhood. Magilla Gorilla, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unless they were watching Boomerang at the time. But yeah. yeah. Magilla Gorilla for sale. Gorilla for sale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got a gorilla for sale. <laughs> That, that, that old boomerang yeah, yeah. short, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> uh, the the big, of course, they, they have the big fight, which I thought was interesting when Batman, you know, Cheetah's in a wig and Batman tries to help her and she turns around and she kind of looks like the post-crisis Cheetah who had, was a werewoman, but mm. she had the long hair like the George Perez right. version that she looked more like the comic book where woman she usually does have long brown hair still, mm-hmm. so I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, the fight must be the kind of thing that made Bruce Tim resist doing Justice League for so long because you have fourteen characters Dang. to keep track of and choreograph. But they pull it off pretty well. I mean, yeah. they you know they do kind of like take Green Lantern out early, so that's one li- like less character to have to, to work, with, especially yeah. somebody who could have probably took care of it in like two seconds. You know, man, Batman is not having a good day. Lex gets the drop on him, and then Copperhead sneaks up on him and bites him. Then Superman, when they get back to the watchtower and he recovers from his bite, Superman orders him to stay in bed. By the time the series is over, we will have a bit of the Bat God from the comics on our hands, much like that started in the Morrison JLA era. And we've seen a bit of it here, like in Secret Origins, where he saves everybody, and the enemy below, where he shows up with a back to tank. You yeah. know, it's like, <laughs> but here they are clearly exploring the very human Batman's place on a team of superpowered gods, and what would that mean to him? And you know, Jean really points it out, but it's real well written and it's yeah. not clunky. I, I think that's an interesting angle to go with Batman in this one because I mean I thought it was kind of surprising rewatching it that, that Lex even gets a drop on him with a gun. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you know, this isn't Batman who can jump into a you know a room full of guys with Thompson submachine guns and throw a battering and knock them Get all them out. All out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> what do you think of when Jean says no to Batman's challenge about stopping him? I mean, what did you think of that? I th- I my take on that was, you know, he's like I, I think you're stupid. You're going to do it anyway, but I'm not going to stop you from being dumb. He respected his autonomy as a fellow man, for lack of a better term. You know, I know right. he's a Martian, but you know. Right, right. But he respected his autonomy because if you say, if you tell somebody, I'm doing this for your own, it means you're treating him like a child. And he was trying to patronize him. Yeah, he yeah. was trying not to patronize him. That's how I took it. Yeah, well, it could be, yeah. And I mean, if you take it that way, it's... It's fine, but the way that Carl Lumley and I think the animation, the way he says, nope, like that is almost like he's like, because he kind of backs away from him, like he's almost like he's afraid of what he's going to do or something, which... I don't think so. I think think it's. I I think it's a clear-cut case of he does not want to patronize Batman, especially after they've just had this discussion about... I know how you can feel on a team of others of superpowered beings, and you don't have mm. any, you know, okay. and he doesn't want to patronize him. Okay. Because if he's treating him like, let, let me pat you on the head, honey. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think he's like, you know, if you're gonna be a dumbass, go ahead. Well, the way I like the way you you've interpreted it better than the way I kind of interpret because the way I interpret it is troubling because it's like he shouldn't be scared of Batman. I don't, no, you know. I don't think I think that was you know he's re- it's a sign of respect. You know, right. this is. And he didn't know what he was doing. He just knew he was leaving. Yes. If he knew what he was doing, he probably would have stopped him. However, on that 
point by you bringing that up, he is a mind reader. He could have read. What yeah, but he do. tries not to read the minds yeah, unless true. he, you know, he doesn't like. To, yeah. He doesn't like to do that. Yeah, we've got Lex talking about wishing for a quick death versus bedpans and feeding tubes. This is another adult reference that just went right over most kids' heads. Yeah, you know, I mean, which is like. You know, it's he's like John Wayne in The Shootist. You yeah. Know? <laughs> you know, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we have the, the Joker. Joker. <laughs> uh, what can we say about the animated Joker? I think he is the best version of the Joker in any media, including comics. Oh, absolutely. Because I think the combination of the way they always wrote him, and usually it was Paul Dini. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not here, but it does. But uh, Berkowitz does a great job with it. But... The way they wrote him and the way Mark Hamill performed the character, mm-hmm. he is the synthesis of all the versions of the Joker. He is the the, the merry prankster, goofy Joker that might mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, joy buzz you slightly. Yeah, give you some pie in the face. He's, he's, he, goes, he can go from Cesar Romero to Heath Ledger in like two seconds, and it all works. Yes. I mean, the, he's the combination of all the best of the Jokers, and he all, and because Hamill plays him so he's so manic and just you know i mean it it all works yeah so yeah and thank goodness they cribbed that third design from batman beyond return of the joker yeah because the new batman adventures redesign was just poop yeah it was not good i did never did like it you know he's the joker's still funny here but he's legitimately frightening looking Mm -hmm. because i remember andrew was like actually, we we watched Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker, the the the, the sanitized version. Yeah, <laughs> but probably watched it with him a little too young because he got kind of scared of it. Yeah, so it's like, well, bad parenting. <laughs> uh, oopsie. <laughs> Whoops. You and I covered Lex and Joker's first team up uh, in that three part Superman animated series, World's Finest, on Supermates several years back. Right. It's great that they call back to their rather strained relationship. You know, mm-hmm. I love it when he comes in and he's. He's, uh, you know, he's like, Lex, and he's like rubbing all over him. And when he, I, I got a screen capture for that to put up on the, you know, the site on firewaterpodcast.com. And he's got his hand on his scalp, and I couldn't help but think of the Rabbit of Seville uh, Looney Tunes. Oh, yeah. When he's, and he's like massaging Elmer Fudd. Scalp. Yeah. And he's, he even gets, does it with his ears and does it with his feet and all that stuff. So it made me think. Our exposure to classical music is definitely through Bugs Bunny. Through Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Johann Mouse and Johann Strauss <laughs> and all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are cultured. Yes, we are. Uh, Joker points out the Bat Tracer, and I went back and looked, and it had to be put there when Batman tackled Lex, and they fell behind the wall of the walkway before it was blown up. Uh, it's not super obvious, but there is time for it to happen. It's not like in Star Trek Six where Spock puts his hand on Kirk's back. Yeah. And it's like super obvious. I'm patting you on the back, which I haven't done in 30 years of 25 years at that point of our relationship. relationship. But but uh, here, let me pat, put my hand on your back and, you know, Verillion Patch, you know. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that needed to be in that movie that way, yes. really. But, you know, and I love that movie. So I just anytime I bring up Star Trek Six, I do. Uh, <laughs> Batman's ego is so bruised. He does... Something really stupid. He goes alone to a place where he knows seven supervillains are holed up. Mm -hmm. Even without the Joker, this is a dumb move. It's so obvious it should have hit him like a ton of bricks. So the Joker does that for us. 
again, <laughs> this is one of those cases that, I mean, this happens all the time with boys and girls, men and women. They get their nose out of whack because something, you know, and they do something, go off and do something stupid because I got to prove myself. This is that's exactly what that is. You, you almost don't feel sorry for Batman in a way. We we need Red Foreman back from In Blackest Night so he can call it dumbass. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but man, what a cliffhanger! And this is all a DC nut can ask for. All these comic villains and DC's two biggest bad guys, voiced by two great actors, in addition to all our regular characters that we love. Yeah. This is good stuff. We've also got series heavy hitters Butch Lukic directing and Stan Berkowitz writing, and they nail the characters and even manage to add some new dimension to several of them. We're off to a great start with part one. Uh, we'll take another promo break, and when we come back, we'll have part two of Injustice for All. Don't turn that podcatcher. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure. Got to give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and... Most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about Cheers, yeah. (laughs) That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. Evolution is a constant even for the world's greatest superheroes. Founding members have departed, new members have stepped in to fill the ranks, and their final memories of Happy Harbor are of a stunning betrayal and the loss of their secret sanctuary. There is only one place to go for the Justice League of America as they march into the Bronze Age of Comics, straight up! More precisely, 22,300 miles up above the Earth. Welcome to a bold new era for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast. Your host, Mike Peacock, invites you to make yourself comfortable for over 100 issues and their very first annual with the League as they enter the much-beloved satellite era. Here's a brief sampling of the thrills and chills that await your podcast catcher. A veritable who's who of new members, such as the Elongated Man, Red Tornado, Zatanna, and Firestorm. Surprise membership returns. More epic team-ups with the Justice Society of America, along with appearances by the Legion of Superheroes, the All-Star Squadron, the New Gods, and even a combination of the DC Universe's greatest heroes of history. A galaxy of superstar writers such as Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Steve Englehart, and Jerry Conway. The longest artistic run in the book's history by the astonishing Dick Dillon, along with contributions by Neil Adams, Don Heck, George Tuska, Rich Buckler, and George Perez. All this and more surprises and excitement await you in this new phase of Justice's First Dawn. 
coming along with Television's Era certified super friends at classicjla.podbean.com or subscribe to the show via iTunes. Oh yeah, and there's the debut of Ultra. Yay! Okay, we're back, and now we're going to synopsize part two of Injustice for All. Batman awakens to find himself bound in some high-tech titanium contraption, surrounded by a stasis field that even John's telepathy can't penetrate. The Joker points out that as long as Batman is still alive, he's dangerous, and recommends Lex not repeat his own mistakes and kill him now. Luther wants him alive until they no longer need him. The Joker calls Lex crazy, and it appears the rest of the Injustice gang agrees. Wakey, wakey, Batman. Joker. I should have known you'd be in on this. Really? I must be falling into a rut. You're not going to leave him like this, are you? Why? Hello? He's still alive. And he's going to stay that way until I say we don't need him anymore. Lex, Lex, listen to someone who knows. Don't wait. Do it now. You don't like my decisions? Leave. And they say I'm crazy. Lex is looking for a pass key to the watchtower, and when Batman won't talk, he has Grundy look into Batman's utility belt, which proceeds to shock him. He orders Grundy and Humanite to watch Batman while he tries to crack the belt's defenses. Batman wastes no time in turning the two giants against one another, asking Grundy if he's getting paid as much as his simian teammate. When Lex finds them pummeling one another, he almost busts a blood vessel, swearing that they're going to kill him faster than the Kryptonite. He orders Cheetah to watch Batman instead. Lex begins to suffer more seizures, which leads the Shade to wonder if they shouldn't get paid now. Lex orders the rest out, but even the most sympathetic of the lot, Humanite, asks for more money in return for helping Lex through his illness. Meanwhile, Superman and Flash interrogate Copperhead at Strikers Island, but the Snake Man isn't buying the Man of Steel's bad cop routine and keeps his forked tongue quiet about Luthor's whereabouts. The Metropolis Marvel wonders, how does Batman do it? Well, one way he does it is by playing psychologist, as he gets Cheetah to tell him her tragic backstory as a research scientist who tested her own findings on herself. And then what happened? My research opened whole new worlds. There was so much to do. But so little funding. You know about that. You didn't have enough for research subjects, so you used yourself. And now I'm a freak. That's not what I see. I see someone who was willing to give up everything for a cause she believed in. How do you know so much about me? Let's just say cats aren't the only ones who are curious. Too much curiosity can be dangerous. Maybe I like danger. Do you? Try me. He even manages to put the moves on her while he's completely bound and chained and the two kiss. What is it with him and cat people anyway? (laughs) While telling Joker he's not going to leave him alone with Batman, Lex manages to open the utility belt and finds the remote entry device to the watchtower. In her energy bubble, Star Sapphire takes Shade and Grundy to the watchtower, where they easily enter the shuttle bay. The lone leaguer at home is Jean, and he responds to their intrusion, but is disoriented by Shade's nightstick and knocked out by Grundy's strength. Back at the Injustice Gang's hideout, the Joker brings a TV and popcorn in front of Batman, announcing a special broadcast, the end of the Justice League. Soon a bomb will destroy the Watchtower and all of Batman's friends, and Batman dies in the sequel. Showtime, everybody! Live and in color, the end of the Justice League. Don't make me laugh. 
<laughs> it's no joke. There's a surprise hidden in your little clubhouse. And once your chums get there, kablooey! Popcorn? Oh well, more for me. Joker, you nauseate me. Oh, he's going to miss the show. And the sequel. What sequel? After the bomb gets your friends, I get you. <laughs> Disgusted by the Joker's antics, Ultra Humanite walks off. The rest of the leaguers respond to John's distress call and find their friend unconscious. What they don't find is the suitcase that the villains left behind containing the bomb. Lex and his crew, minus Humanite and the Joker, watch the scene from outside the watchtower awaiting its destruction. The Shade steals a bit of Lex's Machiavellian glee by asking if they will get paid afterwards. Unbeknownst to the others, Cheetah is slightly saddened by this turn of events. On the Watchtower, Wonder Woman receives a call that they originally think is from Batman. It is instead from a mysterious benefactor who warns them about the bomb. The team comb their headquarters until Green Lantern finds it. Flash throws it out of the airlock and the device explodes in space, much to Luthor's dismay on Earth. He takes his anger out on his gang, and they respond by walking out. Yes! No! It's not fair, they should be cosmic dust! Luther, calm down, your condition. What do you care? You're just a bunch of incompetent money-grubbing crooks! That's it. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm out of here. Me too. Wait! I'll double your pay! What's the point? It's over. No! We can still win if we lure them here! I have a plan, but we've got to stick together! Grundy, not that dumb. Alright then, triple! He begs him to come back for twice the pay, since he has a plan to lure the League to their hideout. When they don't respond, he triples the offer. That gets their attention. John revives and tells his teammates of the gang's infiltration of the tower. They realize they could have only gotten in with Batman's transmitter. Still watching the rather anticlimactic finale on TV, the Joker is determined to make the sequel better and produces a straight razor to use on his old foe. Under Luther's orders, Grundy relieves him and sends the insane clown away. Batman asks the dim-witted zombie for a glass of water, and when he obliges, the Dark Knight spits it up into the stasis generator above, shorting it out. His mind is now open to John's telepathic scans, and Batman sends the location. Elsewhere in the building, Humanite operates on Lex, fitting him with a containment unit chest plate to stabilize his condition. When Grundy tells them that Batman destroyed the stasis field, the gang knows the League is on their way. Lex tells them they'll be ready. Once they dispose of the traitor in their midst who warned the League about the bomb. Luthor accuses Cheetah showing video footage of her and Batman kissing. We'll be ready for them once we get rid of the traitor. Traitor? Think about it. The only way they could have found the bomb is if someone told them. One of us. Fortunately, this old place still has functioning surveillance cameras. I didn't. I wouldn't. You can't think. Get her. 
Hello, kitty. And they say I'm not a team player. Grundy, the pretty kitty's all yours. wasn't me. You've got the wrong one. Wait! She denies it as she flees her teammates, but the Joker arrives and shocks her with his joy buzzer. Lex gives her to Grunty to do with as he pleases. She continues to plead her innocence as he drags her off by the scruff of her neck. The League arrives and John tries to free Batman, but Humanite is ready for him and shocks him in his immaterial form. The rest of the League burst in and another hero-villain melee ensues. The League manages to turn the tide until Luther shows up in his new power armor. He blasts Superman with kryptonite and has the Man of Steel down until Ultra Humanite uses his souped-up cattle prod on Luther. Enough! Where's Luthor? Right here. And I'm going to enjoy every moment of this. Why so surprised, Superman? It's a basic rule of business. Turn every weakness into a strength. Of course, that's a lesson you may not live to appreciate. Neither will you, Lex. It too, humanite. Don't move! I surrender. He immediately surrenders to the League as the Joker takes off to finish Batman. The Harlequin of Hate is surprised to find his foe free, but Matman admits he could have escaped any time. He just wanted to keep an eye on his enemies. Their fight ends as they always do, with the sufficiently pummeled Joker unconscious and defeated. The police cart the Injustice Gangers away. Humanite stops and asks Batman if their offer still stands. The Dark Knight says yes, double what Luthor was paying. The Flash is puzzled by this, but Batman just smiles. Later at Stryker's Island, Humanite once again enjoys the opera, while his neighbor Luthor hollers in complaint. Humanite smiles as his generous funding is acknowledged at the end of the broadcast. Wait. You'll keep our bargain? Yes. Double what Luthor was paying. What was that all about? Humanite! You'll pay for this, you turncoat! Do you hear? You'll pay! This program was made possible by a grant from the Ultra Humanite and viewers like you. He bought him off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll have a lot to talk about about that. Uh, here the Joker doesn't prescribe to keep him alive so we can continue the game theory that the comic Joker often does. But the DC animated Joker has always been more practical in a strange way. Right. I mean, he's crazy, but he's not, not like crazy in like that way, you know? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, Batman really knows how to wind these guys up. Uh, you know, he gets Grundy and Humanite. After each other. Oh, it's kind of like how he yeah. did with Harley Quinn uh -huh. when he got her to, you know, uh, to call the Joker over in, when he, in Mad Love. Right, you know, right. He'll never believe it, you know, and all this, you know, that type of thing, yeah. Um, 
One of my favorite things about these episodes is how twitchy Lex gets every time, you know, they, it's like, it shows him, like, he's got, literally got, like, an eye that's, like, like, undu- <laughs> undulating, that's just like, and he's just, you know, <laughs> he's so frustrated. He's like, he's like a dad that's, like, on a road trip with a bunch of unruly kids. I've seen kids. you do this. So it's like, I've seen your eye going, if you don't stop, I'll turn this supervillain team around right now, you know, so. <laughs> Again, I've seen you do this. Yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, These episodes constantly reinforce that these people are bad people. They're bad human beings, or whatever the hell they are. Lex suffers a seizure, and Shade wonders if they should get paid early. Yeah. They should get paid now. It's like, uh, Humanite offers to help Lex for more money. Uh, these are very base people who are just out for a paycheck, no question. I, they don't even seem to have a grudge against the heroes. No. At all. Other, just, you know. other than Lex and the Joker. So if they did fight the heroes before, there's not like this personal, I want to get the Green Lantern and I got to destroy the Flash. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, I got to get paid. You know? Yeah. <laughs> got to make rent this week. Yeah. I'm not sure I like the Copperhead is not scared of Superman. What do you think about that? Copperhead, the way, and especially like the way they show him, especially later on, like I keep thinking about the episode. Um, with kid the stuff. Kid, kid stuff. And he's like, we're in the bad place, the bad place. I mean, he, <laughs> he's. I love that. Well, but I'm saying, you know, the way they show him throughout the series, he's all big and bad until push comes to shove. And you would think that, okay, it's Superman, but then again, he knows that Superman is innate goodness. So, yeah, if he was faced with Batman, he'd probably pee himself. Yeah, but I, I can't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that he bit him, but he bit him from behind. So, if he was faced with Batman face to face, how would he react? I, I don't know. I struggle. I don't want super, I don't want people to be, I don't want innocent people to be scared of Superman. I mean, I hate that. I hate that aspect of the Snyderverse. I hate it. It might be more realistic, but I don't give a damn. I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> I, but I think state a villain, an enemy, should still be afraid that Superman might just decide to, you know, lobotomize them or, yeah. you know, sneeze on them and disintegrate them or something. You know, what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> it's, it, I, I don't know. It, it's it's another it's it's another example of making. And he says that how does Batman do it? It's another example. Of making Batman look good by making Superman look bad. Yeah. And it all goes back to Frank Miller and Dark Knight Returns, really. So it's like, I don't really like when they do that. Uh, apparently Batman is into furries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First Catwoman in the Batman animated series episode, Tiger, Tiger, where she gets mutated into a... a, a More real, of a cat, A yeah. real cat person. And now the cheetah. Imagine all the fur balls you get from kissing her. <laughs> <laughs> Here, Kevin Conroy doing furball noises. But, you know, could be worth it. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> uh, the Joker has several purely fun scenes in this episode, like when Lex breaks into the utility belt and Joker takes a batarang and throws it into... Uh, Crate and its explosive batarang, and it blasts his rolling chair across the the room in circles. Yeah. I think it's cute, you know, fun stuff. Maybe we should add not so Martian meter on this one because Jean gets taken out like a chump, you know, after, you know, 
you know, my thing with him and Batman, of course, I, you interpreted it differently, but I mean, the, you know, Shade and Grundy take him out like that. Yeah. So it's like, and he's going to get taken out again later, so. If you're paying attention, when Humanite gets disgusted with Joker's broadcast stunt, that's when he makes the call to the Watchtower. Mm-hmm. You know? So, if, you know, that, so they do give him a moment when he could do that. Uh, I think it's a nice bit that they make Cheetah slightly remorseful at the Watchtower, Watchtower's impending destruction. Uh-huh. Which I kind of, for a minute there, I'm like, wait a minute, why are they getting such a great picture of the Watchtower? But it actually shows them go past a, another satellite in Star Sapphire's bubble. It's probably a Lex Corp satellite. Right. Or even if it's not, they hacked into it yeah. you know, with a camera. So Here's something we all discussed when we were watching yes. this. Flash... Runs to the airlock with the suitcase bomb. Mm-hmm. They open the airlock, and he stands there and throws it out into space. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't show him, like, running backwards at super speed, staying in place. No. He's just standing there. Yeah. Why hasn't he sucked that into space? <laughs> we all said that. I'm like, what? Unless he, you know, okay, maybe he's vibrating his molecules so he can't, you know, or something, you know, I don't know. But they don't show that. They All they had to do was show him, like, running in place you know, like he's yeah. like keeping, you know, and and like basically running backwards in place. Yeah. But now they don't. He's just standing still. So that was that was a kind of a way boo-boo. to boo boo. Yeah. Of course, Luthor has to triple the offer to get the gang to come back again. These folks are greedy, and if you remember, Olivia Diabo was in that movie Greedy with Michael J. Fox, where she played Kirk Douglas's very, very, very young and very scantily dressed uh, mistress or wife. Remember that movie? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I remember that movie. <laughs> You're not going to hit me over that? <laughs> you just give me the look. Okay, gotcha. Uh, the Joker has a straight razor on a kid's cartoon. Just think of that. Yeah. <laughs> and he puts it right in Batman's face, like right up to him, you know. It's like, again, back to the Barber of Seville. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought Batman's solution to sending Jean his signal is pretty ingenious to spit in the water yeah, up into just... the yeah that that was cool that was a nice Batman escape thing basically um, the chess piece that Lex wore looks familiar right off the bat but let's put a pin in that I'm like oh yeah now there you go so now we do have to ask this it's opinion time did Batman know he was setting Cheetah up as the scapegoat for the traitor. I don't know. I mean, he obviously spoke to Ultra Humanite off camera and made him that deal before Joker come down with the TV. Right. So, what, did he know, or maybe talk to him earlier? Well, Grundy was in there, so I don't yeah. think he did. But, so did he know that, or he was just trying to create dissension in the ranks and just kind of fell out that way? You know, I mean, it's... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's kind of, you know, and how come Luther doesn't have footage of Humanite speaking with Batman about their deal? I mean, you don't hear audio from the Cheetah right. video, so maybe it was one of those old uh, closed-circuit TVs that didn't have audio. Yeah. So, possibly. It just makes you wonder, is Batman responsible for what happens to Cheetah? Because we'll get into that, too. Yeah. Uh, or what was supposed to happen to Cheetah. <laughs> um Brute well, I mean, we'll just go ahead and talk about it. Bruce Tim uh, confirmed that he intended for Cheetah to be dead. Yes. That this was the last time you were going to see the Cheetah Grundy was supposed to take her off and kill her. Right. 
we see her at the end of the pat at the end of the episode in a paddy wagon with the rest of the group, but that was a mistake by an animator. Yeah, she wasn't supposed to be there. Uh, Zoom Yukonori brought that to my attention, but I actually remember he, he said, "Oh, don't forget to mention that." And I'm glad he did because I kind of had forgotten it, but I do remember it. I either read it or heard it somewhere. And I can't remember where I went and looked where I thought we heard it and it wasn't there. Oh, okay. So I'm not, I heard that, I heard Bruce Tim say that somewhere, either read it or heard him say it. But yes, she was supposed to be dead. Mm-hmm. They'd run D, took her off and did something to her, killed her. Um, you know, you just weren't supposed to see her again. But she shows up again throughout the series, so there you go. Uh, again, Jean gets taken out very easily. Uh, he's filling in for Superman in this, these episodes, who's pretty confident, confident yeah. here. Yeah, uh, There's some fun stuff in the fight. Shade envelops Hot Girl in darkness, and she crashes into those Wonder Twin statues we talked about earlier. Yeah, so, so cool. Yeah. Also, while GL is battling Starfire in the air, he warns her, Duck! She proceeds to be pummeled by a flying cartoon duck statue that Superman just punched through. That Grundy had thrown at him, and Green Lantern says, I tried to warn her. Yes. <laughs> uh, there is one shot in particular which stood out to me as typical horny animators just having fun. Uh, you'll see that a lot in animation. Uh, Joker throws a Cupid doll at Wonder Woman, and we get an over-the-shoulder shot of her holding it. And her cleavage is nuts for a kid's cartoon. I showed you that, right? Yeah. It's like, wow. Just, I mean... Yeah, the view from over Wonder Woman's shoulder would be pretty revealing with what she's got on, but it's like her boobs look like three times bigger than they normally do in that shot. Yeah. It's like, dang, and I'll put that in the, you know, I'll put the screen grab up, you know. Of course you will. Fletch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just putting it out there to show the folks what, you know, so. Fletch. Those Shag's irredeemableness is rubbing off on me. Uh, The League is showing really nice teamwork here. For instance, Shade is about to blast Green Lantern with his nightstick, so Flash punches him into Hot Girl's arms, who knocks him out and breaks his cane. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Joker throws down marbles to stop the Flash, just like the Trickster did on the 90s TV show. It's apparently a Mark Mark Hamill thing. thing. Yeah, it's a Mark Hamill thing. Yeah. Lex's power armor! The The superpowers kid in me just loves this. Plus, I bought Action Comics number 544 right off the stands when the new Luthor and Brainiac debuted, so I'm always a sucker for that, the George Perez power armor. And then when Lex gets betrayed by Humanite, he says, at two Humanites, so Lex would, you know, he would make a good Star Trek villain because he's always... How many Star Trek references have you made in this particular I don't know. There's a lot of Star Trek references, but he would make a good, you know, all the Shakespeare references in Star Trek, particularly Star Trek VI, which I mentioned earlier, (laughs) which has a Shakespearean title. It looks like Tim, I think, I don't know this for a fact, but it looks to me like Tim personally boarded the Batman-Joker confrontation because it's more fluid and elastic in its animation. Mm-hmm. It looks more like his like stuff, like his personal stuff. It's a fun bit for old Batman animated series fans. You even get the, the theme yeah. in there, so it's fun. So Batman bought Humanite off with PBS funding in his name. Mm-hmm. Now that's slick and definitely under the table. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't beat them, bribe them. <laughs> you know? And, and I'm sure Batman was like he wasn't going to give him money, like cash money, because he could use it for some evil scheme. But he would donate it to PBS in, in his, his na- name. In his yeah. name. 
And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> human eye's like, I can go for that. <laughs> Again, human eye may be evil, but he has redeeming qualities. Yeah. Now, the ending is cute, but where's Batman's lesson? What did Batman learn from this? Do we really believe he could have escaped whenever he wanted? Would he, would the, the better story have been him needing his teammates and realizing this after his really stupid move of entering the lion's den alone last episode. I think that's a better story. Uh, this is a cute ending, yeah. but I don't think Batman learned anything. I think they they like they the first part of this the part one was basically Batman got his uh, you know his pride hurt and then he went and did something stupid mm-hmm. and got caught. But in this one and then. And once he's in the situation, he goes into Batman mode and gets himself partially out. That's fine. I, I don't have any problem with that. You know, manipulating people, spitting in the thing to, you know, but but really the other leaguers should have freed him and he should have learned that, you know, I think it would have been a better story for Batman to have learned his lesson mm-hmm. about being part of the team, not, you know, going off and doing something stupid by himself you know, consulting with the others before doing something like that. But no, it's like, you know, nah, forget all that. Let's just have Batman buy Humanite off. And he got out. He got it. He could have got out any time. He could have got out any time he wanted to. It's like, uh, he told the Joker that, but I don't even know if I'm buying it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... But also, by him saying that I could have escaped, he, that's also him playing mind games to set up, hey, I am infallible. You can't mess with me. So that might have been, he might have realized he did his need his teammates, but he didn't want the villains to know that. Well, that's true. Yeah, you know that's true. He's got to keep his bat street cred in Gotham. Yeah, yeah, especially with the Joker. Yeah, that's true. That's true too. Uh, this story is kind of Lex's, kind of Humanites, and kind of Batman's, and it seems it's going to be Batman's, but he doesn't really change or grow, and he he's he, he's shown to not be so human after all because he could have gotten out whenever he wanted. Of course. If they just killed him like the Joker suggested, he would have been really screwed. Right. So, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I see your point, too. I mean, I, I really enjoy these episodes, but I do think there should have been a, a scene of Superman and him, like Superman giving him the stink eye, like, yeah, that was really dumb. Yeah. You know, or something like that, you know, just kind of giving him a little bit of a dressing down for being stupid. You know, I, I, just a little quick exchange and an eyebrow raise or something. It's like, yep. got in a little over your head, didn't you? Why don't you, you know, tell us next time what you're planning on doing or something. And Batman just kind of, you know, and just walk off or something, you know. But anyway, still a great, great episode. Uh, So now we'll get into our usual features. We have our power action feature. Power action feature. Which is like the best move of each leaguer. Uh, Do you have one that you particularly... I agree with what you, we've got. Okay, got. yeah. So I put down, uh, despite his poor showings later in the story, Jean gets that <gasps> moment when he's Superman in disguise. Right. I think that's really cool. That's 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 a cool use of his powers too. Which I thought was cool. There's a there's a back when Byrne was doing uh, Action Comics, and the Action was a, a team up title. Uh, Superman fought Silver Banshee and. And, you know, she, like, kills you with her scream, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, it looked like like Superman was dead and his ghost appeared and she kept using the scream on him. But it, it's like something about the pitch of her scream has to be specific to the person she's using it on or I can't remember. But it was Jean in disguise as a oh. ghostly Superman. And then they just defeated her together. So it kind of reminded me of that. I thought that was cool. 
rotating chairperson. So who do you think was the the leaguer that 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 stood out from the pack in this one? Oh, I'm, again, I agree with you. It's Batman. I mean, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure it needs to be Batman, but it is. It is, it is yeah. Batman. Yeah, it doesn't seem that way at first, but the way the episode ends, it seems Batman is a one-man Justice League. He barely needs his teammates by the end of episode two. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not sure that's the way the story should have went, but that's the way it went. So. There you go. <laughs> Justice League communicator. Okay, Justice League communicator. Did you have a particular line that that jumped out at you? Just kind of like, I'm not used to being saved. I'm used to being thanked when I save someone. I'm not used to being saved. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, that, that kind of takes the whole episode. I mean, you know. That, that, and my my favorite one was um, when they're watching, going to watch the Watchtower blow up, and the shade's like, and then we get paid, and Lex is like, can't you let me enjoy this for just a minute? Any minute now, any minute, and then we get paid, right? Please, can't you let me savor this one moment? Sorry. You know, it's like, or whatever, you know, I thought... It's kind of like with you and Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit, yeah. Uh, I thought that was good. That kind of, that covered the whole, how exasperated Lex was Mm -hmm. through the whole thing, so I like that. Comic connections. Like we said, uh, all the Injustice Gang, League, Society... Uh, teams and other other teams appearances influenced this all the super teams as well as the death of Lex and fall of Metropolis storylines where Lex was finally brought down as a criminal because mm-hmm. that's the one where his clone body deteriorated and he just said screw it I'm blowing up the town destroying it you know so that's when they finally kind of put an end to him as benign businessman Lex not so Superman count okay we have the missile at the beginning of part one but that may have been kryptonite right he does get knocked around by Grundy and Humanite an awful lot but we've seen that in the comics so I can't really count that against them mm-hmm. Star Sapphire zaps him but if Sinestro can do him as that you know as much damage then so can she so can't really count that we could count Copperhead not being afraid of the alien who could crush his bones to powder with his pinky. Uh, so let's just leave it at one and combine two half demerits for this and, and the missile. Right. For Copperhead. I can see missile. that. We'll just, yeah. we'll just, I'll go with that. He'll just go one. I mean, he does get knocked around a lot, but he is fighting two big, huge powerhouse guys that are known to be near his strength level. So uh, at least Grundy is anyway. Hot Girl Magic Mace Meter. Hot Girl's Magic Mace Meter. I actually have zero on this because... Hot Girl's Mace is later established to be about the only thing that really hurts Grundy. Right. So knowing that, I can't really count it against her. It's odd that one whack from the mace knocks him away when Superman couldn't. But we'll consider this establishing a later plot line and we'll move on. Yeah, there you go. uh, We'll now go over to our JLA mail room. Uh, We have uh, got some... uh, Feedback from uh, episode two that was uh, left later by uh, the irredeemable Shag himself. Uh, You want to read that one? Sure. Just a quick comment about the episode you covered. I was a devoted Kyle Rayner fan. He's still my favorite Green Lantern. So this cartoon was a huge disappointment. They basically gave Hal's origin to Kyle and made Kyle somewhat generic. He was essentially Hal as an artist. I wanted Kyle's original costume. I wanted Kyle to be hip, fun, and amazing. And while I love Superman the Animated Series, this episode really was a blow to my comic faithful nerd senses. Yeah, really took that to a downer place. Sorry. With that said, nice coverage by you two. 
Thanks again for another great episode. So happy Cindy's spousal abuse has carried over to the show. <laughs> I see I haven't hit you. I know you refrained. I even made that Olivia this comment, but you know, so. Uh, so we got Facebook likes and shares on episode three from Max Romero, Derek William Crabb, Clinton Robeson, Joseph Kimbler, Van Z, Robert Myers, Keith G. Baker, Brian Linton, Brian Ng, Sean Emmons, Max Traver, Jimmy McGlinchey, John Grenier, Jonathan Brown, Douglas Evasick, Chag, Siskoid, Rob Kelly, Coffee and Comics, and Gene Hendricks. We got Twitter retweets and favorites from Warlord Worlds, History of Comics on Film, Con L, Legion Bloggers, Christados, The Irredeemable Shag, The 108th Sage, Max Romero, KB Likes Comics, Elizabeth Tony, Tim Price, Jeremiah Parker, Jacob Proper, Callum Nogger, Miff, Dinomite, Dr. DC Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Maz at Mazinger1978, Zoom Yukonori, Ali Bats, Charlie Reads Comics, DCOCD, Comic Reflections, It's Plastic Man, Justice's First Dawn, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Luke Dobb, Hicks, Two True Freaks, Ryan Daly, Rick Rouge, Sir Greybeard, Brewers Fan, J.H. Stinson, Edgy Smedgy, Max Romero, and Chris at BTO and Bat Books. Fire and Water Comments. Our first one is from Chuck Coletta. My favorite Aqua moment from Brave and the Bold cartoon was the Curries of Atlanta sequence where the animators appropriated the theme song from a failed 1966 Phyllis Diller sitcom, The Pruitts of Southampton. Yes, and he shared that link in the... Go to the comment section and watch that. I had no idea that that was... I mean, it's directly based on that. I had no idea. Oh. I mean, you know, and I I didn't know Phyllis Diller. I just remember Phyllis Diller as the woman that just, you know, showed up and then my... My grandparents and parents would, you know, like if your hair was messed up, say, oh, you look like Phyllis Diller or something like that. <laughs> and she'd go, ha ha, darling, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I just, and she was on Scooby-Doo, you yeah. know. So, uh, Paul Hicks wrote in to say, you three are way too comfortable as a recording unit. Going to collectively call you, tr- <laughs> how do you pronounce it? Cronob. Cronob. C-H-R-I-N-O-B. Cronob, I guess. Yeah, Cronob. <laughs> well, you know. Why not? I have to share Chris with Rob. I realize this. Yeah, and Ryan. And so, Ryan, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rob Kelly also wrote in to say, the greatest podcast ever produced by Western Civilization. Well, duh. <laughs> Just like JLA number 200. It's the greatest comic produced by Western Civilization. Dial C for comment. As for these episodes, talk about getting into some heavy stuff. Political intrigue, threats of war, an attempted murder of a little baby, and a cutting off of a limb. This stuff blew my mind as a kid. It's kind of... It kind of has a Frank Miller's 300 vibe from some of the scenes with Aquaman and Mira. And I was wondering if the scene where Orm is getting handsy with Mira was kind of homaging the stuff with Leonda's wife and the advisor from the comic, though thankfully never that far. Orm definitely was a pretty neat villain, though kind of a one note, I think. I think that if they had delved a bit more into the Aquaman mythos with him and Arthur would have made the attempted taking of their crown more personal. As for his death, it was definitely one of the highlights of the show that they would kill him off like that again. Wondering if 300 was an influence on that as well. Maybe. It's very possible. Ward Hill Terry wrote in, On to the subject at hand. All I know is what I've just heard, but it did get me to thinking as I was listening. Number one, Deadshot was right. He would have told the truth if he was alone with Wonder Woman. Her lasso would have compelled him to tell the truth. Uh, More on that later. Two, Aquaman Baby's blanket. Why does he have a blanket? What is the blanket made of? It's not wool. It's not cotton. So how 
So now I'm thinking more about how you're describing Atlantis. They're walking around on bridges. Who's walking? Why? Bridges over what? Everyone should be swimming. Next time you're at a big pool with lanes painted on the bottom, take a walk on one on one of the lanes. Let me know how that goes. Number three, Atlantean tech. It's got to be Kirby tech because it can't be conventional electronics, right? But what are all these warships and depth charges made of? Forged metal? Mm-hmm. Number four, Orms antecedents regarding dooming princesses. Richard III via Shakespeare. Number five, thanks so much for that final song. I love when there's a special treat after the credits. Um, I think... It seemed like this version, I think I put that in the comment section. It's been a while since we covered this one. One, Wonder Woman's lasso isn't magic at this point. We'll get that later. She doesn't have the truth, lasso of truth yet. It mm-hmm. hasn't, she hasn't got a lasso upgrade yet. Mm-hmm. She'll get that later in the series. Um, also, Atlantis, it looked to me like that in this Atlantis, there wasn't water everywhere. It's like the water was like, like outside. Yeah, like, it was like it was a domed city. Yeah, but a lot of times it's a domed city with water inside the dome too mm-hmm. in the comics. But it's like, no, this time they're like just walking around and stuff. I don't know if they just like go outside and get refreshed or they just don't need as much water as the comic. You know, it's like that whole hour thing, which was really limiting, you know. Luke Giaconetti writes in, If I'm remembering correctly, this was my wife's first introduction to Aquaman. As I don't think she had seen a fish story, and she certainly did not read comics or watch Super Friends as a girl. As such, I think she was always con- she always considered him a powerhouse, unlike a lot of folks our age who still consider him a joke. In my mind, I consider this a sequel to a fish story, because as was mentioned on the show, Superman seemed to know Aquaman and was able to speak with him, indicating that they were at least on civil terms with each other after the results of the earlier episode. As far as Aquaman's changed appearance, I considered it similar to how Scarecrow changed designs partway through Batman the Animated Series, or how essentially all the cast changed designs between Batman the Animated Series and New Adventures. The characters have changed their look, but are otherwise supposed to be the same. Yeah, I think I think so. I I, I do honestly think that, that that this is this is supposed to be the same Aquaman. It's just you know, he's changed his look. He's went more you know. Atlantean with his look and uh, you know and him and Superman do remember each other from a fish story that's mm-hmm. my take yeah Siskoid wrote in I remember being of two minds about this episode or rather how it how early it came in the schedule I couldn't decide if having Aquaman show up so soon was the creators throwing us Aquaman fans a bone after not including him in the lineup or it was just rubbing it in but I think it made the case that Aquaman had a lot on his hands already and wouldn't add it and wouldn't add to it by joining the league, I guess. Yeah, I, I think I do think they went ahead and did this episode early just to say, hey, we're not forgetting Aquaman. We're going to mm-hmm. include him. Yeah, that's my personal opinion. Tim Price writes in, I agree completely with the kudos given to Tim and company for the writing and characterization of JLU. But another thing to consider is the strength of having a team of writers working on the series. In the comics, it's one writer for a long stretch. Yes, there's a collaboration with artists and editors, but by and large, the writer is a one-man show. With a cartoon, there's a rotating group, and they probably could collaborate more, not to mention being allowed to reuse concepts and stories originally written by others. So this series' writers get almost an unfair advantage. Not that I'm complaining, because they did an exemplary job of it. The stories could have been phoned in, but that didn't happen. They put out excellent stories more often than not. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, you had, you know, I mean, the writers basically 
all like the the main writers probably all like like threw ideas around about each story. It mm-hmm. seemed like they did, you know, because sometimes it's like, well, I come up with the germ of that story, and then this guy I handed it off to this guy, and he developed it or something, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes it's like, well, I came up with this idea, so I worked the whole thing out. But it's still they they sit around and kick the ideas around and the directors and Bruce Tim everybody was involved even more so than like a comic book mm-hmm. so I, I mean that's and they the checks there were more checks and balances in place so yeah I think I think that definitely helped the animated the DC animated universe and like he said they had all this history to pull from so they could say well that part of that don't work but this does so just like Lex like Lex is let's bring him down but let's not have a clone body and all that stuff let's you know right so uh, we got another response on episode three from Shag. He says, hi, resident punching bag for this episode. <laughs> Sheesh. I thought Chris was supposed to get beat up on this show, not me. All kidding aside, another fantastic episode that Rob made for a great guest. I was a huge fan of the Peter David era of Aquaman, and even I agree this was the best possible origin for the hook hand. Wow, such a powerful episode. And while we didn't get Aquaman as a regular, they really did a great job of making him regal and deserving of the throne. Nicely handled. Yes, definitely. And we will definitely, we will see Aquaman again, as we said. Right, 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 right. Mike Zumo writes in, I watched this before listening to the episode, and boy, did I forget the size of that can opener on Aquaman's stump. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's... It's a harpoon. It's it's like the the size of his torso. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So, well, that'll do it for this episode. We uh, we finally got another episode out, and hopefully we'll be back on track for August. Uh, but then we'll probably take a break for a couple months while we go back to Supermates and do the House of Frankenstein. Frankenstein yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So uh, next time we should do uh, Paradise Lost. So we'll be doing that one. I believe that has uh, Felix Faust and uh, is played by Robert England, Freddy Krueger himself. That's right. That's so right. that that should be fun. He's good in that. So uh, and I always always kind of like Felix Faust. Like he was a cool villain. So uh, join us for that. Uh, leave us comments on FireAndWaterPodcast.com, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. JLU Cast is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide and is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue mommy and daddy. Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at firewaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for JLUcast and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to JLUcast. From the farthest reaches of the universe to challenge the worst villains on earth are the most powerful heroes ever in the battle of the superpowers collection. Superpowers figures with power action each sold separately. Watch out for the Joker. Lex Luthor's power suit is in power action. And it's because of the mini comics. The Superpowers Collection, Superman, The Flash, Lex Luthor, Joker, and other figures with power action each sold separately, new from Kenner.